Welcome to Food for Thought. Your table is now ready. Your servers will be Nate Geary and Bruce Nolan. Our specials today are cold, hard facts and fresh, hot takes. Can I get you started with... I'm sorry, just one moment. Can I get a little energy in here? Serving it up to you live on the Buffalo Rumbling Bitcast Network. I'm Bruce Nolan, that's Nate Geary, and this is Food for Thought. The topic du jour, well, that's a little bit more like it. After the Buffalo Bills not only beat the Washington football team, but beat them qualitatively, mm. the way that we're used to seeing the Buffalo Bills win and used to seeing them win in such a way that caused Josh Allen to sign a $258 million contract. We all feel markedly different this week than we did the same time last week. Before we get started, as you are getting seated, a reminder to like, subscribe, rate, review, interact in all those fun ways. A reminder that during the show, YouTube Super Chats will get priority. We are not going to be able to get to every single comment, but we will get to every single super chat along with me as always mr nate geary mr geary how you doing i am absolutely fantastic mr bruce nolan thank you uh once again for you know just a fantastic introduction to the show this week and let me start by just ah, just cracking open this is the same thing that i've had for a couple of times here now it's the paula's um you know peanut stick porter but the reason i'm i'm popping it on air this time bruce is for something that I call payback. And payback is typically best served cold and just so happens this delicious beer is is piping cold. So the reason uh the that I'm you know bringing the metaphor into this Bruce is it's just it's about damn time that we saw this Bills offense function and look like the offense that uh, that brought them to the AFC Championship game just a season ago. And it's just it's it's good it's a good feeling to have that when you need an offense who is, you know, probably under the most pressure that it's been um, in, in at least my memory of football, which dates back, you know, right after the Bills Super Bowl run. So I could say that this is probably some of the most pressure I've seen a quarterback under through two games of a season, which they were, you know, one and one, and they just won 35 to nothing. So um, if whatever that pressure existed, I thought Josh Allen handled it really well, and I thought the Bills offense as a whole – had a really nice bounce back game and sort of that um, that Baker Mayfield planting the flag in the middle of Texas's logo, sort of, or Texas Tech or whatever, whoever it was at the time. Uh, it might have even been Kansas. It was something weird because Baker's like that. But I digress. It was a good flag in the center of the opponent's logo um, type moment for the Bills offense, who, who I just think really, really needed it. I would just like to go on record as saying that the pl- flag planting episode was actually against the Ohio State Buckeyes. And I felt way off pretty, pretty bad about that, given my affiliation with the Ohio State University. So you do have some affiliation there, don't you? I do. I am an alumnus of the Ohio State University and an Ohio State University fan. You just gave the FBI. You just gave them the first clue, Bruce. I did. Now, now people are going to they're just going to scrub the archives. 
Right. They're, they're, they're going to, they're going to find me at some point knowing that at some point I attended the Ohio state university. So you know what? Have at it. Good luck. If you're going to waste all that manpower on poor little Bruce, so be it. Mr. Geary, I feel like this week more so than most weeks is a great example of how the qualitative play that we see on the field matters so much. And it's not just results-based because the margin of victory was not as significant versus the Washington football team as it was versus a division rival. But yet we all feel way different this week than we did last week. If that doesn't go to show you that how and why you win matters and affects your optimism or pessimism about the team going forward, then I don't know what does. But it seemed to me like this was a team that fundamentally made their fans feel different this week than they did previously. They definitely brought the emotional thing with them this week. And it, I, the thing that I, I guess I appreciate, particularly about Brian Dable and, and Josh Allen, and this is going to sound cliche, Bruce, but am I right or or do I feel weird in saying like they get it? Like, like they get the bigger picture. And sometimes I think you could probably point back to several head coaches over the last 20 years head coaches, offensive coordinators, and frankly, Bruce, when was the last time two coordinators were as much of a part of the story as the Bills coordinators have been? I just, you could rifle through the head coaches in the last 20 years, and you would really struggle to, you know, the Turk Schonerts of the world, right? Like, naming these really insignificant pieces to the puzzle, and and when you think about this team and, and, and sort of the people at the top, and yeah, of course it's McBean, and, you know, it's Bean and McDermott, but just as much of those two is Leslie Frazier, is Brian Dable. And I can say for, you know, without a shadow of doubt, like they get it. Um, and they they understand sort of where they are right now and, and the expectations that exist. And 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 I think to your point, um, it's it's just nice to, to hear it acknowledged. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. I think it's nice from the very beginning when you said things like, hey, it's a passing league. We were all like, okay, you know what? We don't have the same, well, we got to run the ball and stop the run. You know, we didn't have that same mentality going into uh, head coach. And then when you have a quarterback and you're like, all right, I got the quarterback. Then your whole thought is, okay, well, are they going to treat him like a franchise guy? Are we going to let him throw 35, 45 times a game? And the answer is yes. And then they pay him and you go, okay, great. And then everything is the way the NFL is going or ahead of the way the NFL is going instead of so far behind where the NFL is. And that's part of just, just flat out getting it just flat out getting it. So you are sitting there with Paula's peanut Mm. stick beer. I am am sitting here with a Sprecher root beer that I picked up at Costco, Mm. which is absolutely delightful. And it got me thinking when I was picking up root beer at Costco, you know, there are people out there who are drink connoisseurs right? They're root beer connoisseurs. They're cream soda connoisseurs. Obviously, beer connoisseurs is their own thing, right? I can't help but notice that there are particular broad brushes we can paint when we talk about connoisseurs of specific drinks. My experience has been that root beer connoisseurs and cream soda connoisseurs, delightful to be around. Always so appreciative, Mm. willing to try new stuff. Some of the beer connoisseurs can be a little bit snooty. Nate, very snooty. Your experience, you're a beer guy, right? Is tell me, yeah, am I wrong here, or is or beer connoisseurs just a different breed, like wine connoisseurs? 
I think it's a what 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 is the um the the whiskey beverage that is a highball, right? And yeah. I think it was a Jim Beam highball commercial that showed like all the random people trying to force their beers on that on the on the on the guy that was walking up to the bar and the bartender was like, How about just like a whiskey highball, a beam highball? And it was I, I thought it was funny because I, I felt it very relatable as it feels like beer guys um tend to want to push their type of beer, particularly IPA guys, right? Like mm. I'm not really an IPA guy. Um, I don't love like the bitterness and the hoppiness of a lot of the IPAs, but like you'll have somebody that's insistent that you try this 14.8% um, ABV IP, double IPA. And I'm just like, yeah, that that's, that's not for me, but they're very insistent. Like you'll like this one, even though you've never liked any of the other really high end ABV, uh, you know, uh, I, I just I don't I don't get that I, to to me Bruce. They're some of the worst people of the connoisseur pools of people. Like if you could be a connoisseur of one thing, don't be a connoisseur of beer because I just feel like you're always so damn pushy. If you if it was really that good, you wouldn't have to convince so many people to try it. Like you don't you don't, you yeah. don't have to sell people on root beer. Yeah, I, I just agree don't. It's one of those things where they it's an inability to see outside of your own circle so significantly that if somebody says, Hey, I don't like an IPA, their initial response isn't, Oh, that guy doesn't like IPAs. It's he clearly hasn't had the right IPA. It's this inability to understand that people's tastes are just different and that's okay. Like we just can't just let that die. Instead it's, I don't like garbage plates. Well, you didn't get it from the right place, right? I don't like, you know, Salem's hot dogs. Well, you didn't cook it right. You know, it's, it's those kind of things. It's always the, there's always something. There's always something. And Bruce, I, I, I don't get enough opportunities to sort of, you know, open you up and, and reveal you to the world. Let me ask you a very, very, very personal question. Since you've told people where you went to college, I think this is fair that I, that I pry this layer back open. All right. Are you a Coke or a Pepsi guy? Oh man, that's a great. So I actually drink very, very, very little soda. So I have. As do I. I'm the same way as you. Mm -hmm. Um, I drink very little soda. Um, I, if you remember correctly, I was in the hospital about two years ago, and one of the reasons I was in the hospital is because my diet was was garbage. And one of the things I did after that was I significantly cut back my soda intake to the point where I'll have, you know, two or three a week instead of four or five a day, and so it was significantly cut it back. I don't think I've had a straight cola in a really, really long time. If you make me take a straight cola, right? Mm -hmm. A Coke or a Pepsi, I will take a Coke. If you, if you make me take a diet, I will take a diet Pepsi. No one make me take a zero calorie. I will take a Coke zero. No one's one's going to do that. Hmm? Yeah. No one, no one's going to make you take a diet, buddy. So that's, that's particularly me. Diet soda, by the way, is terrible for you. For you people that are out there drinking diet soda with your artificial sweeteners, like stop. It's just as your friend. I'm I'm your friend here and on this on this live stream and and on this podcast. Like I'm I'm on a lookout for you. I know there's this misconception about me, Bruce, that I'm just this you know big guy, big cocky jerk who who knows everything, which is true. But I I do care for you, and I I don't think any of you should be drinking diet pop. Having said that, Bruce, your this revelation this evening. You've always sort of been a top shelf guy for me. You've sort of moved into the next sphere of top notchness. So um, congratulations on on really 
just remaining the Bruce exclusive in my, and not only my mind, but my heart as well. I feel elite. I feel so elite. As you should. Speaking of elite, there have been some players for the Buffalo Bills that we have been keeping an eye on this year. You and I did a podcast together this summer called the worry algorithm. And we specifically talked about people we're keeping an eye on for breakout years this year. Mm -hmm. We talked about Dawson Knox. We talked about Ed Oliver. We talked about Tremaine Edmonds. We talked about Cody Ford. And we said, okay, if they don't break out, how harmful is that to the Bills? And what do we think the chances are of them breaking out? So we're three games in. So I want to take the temperature of you and everybody in the comments and people in the comments section. I want to hear from you. Where are we on Dawson Knox? Where are we? on Ed Oliver. Where are we on Edmonds? Where are we on Ford? Let's start. Let's start with Tremaine Edmonds. And the reason I want to start with him is because he's the fourth year guy. He is the guy where we already picked up a fifth year option right on Tremaine Edmonds. And the same conversations that have been happening last year, summer, when it comes to Josh Allen was, it really wasn't, are you going to extend him? It's, are you going to extend him now to a top five contract for the quarterbacks? That's a question. And that's the same question you're going to have about Tremaine Edmonds this offseason. It's not, are you going to extend him at all? Because you still have another year. Mm-hmm. It's, are you going to extend him now for that amount? Because you're not getting him at $9 million a year. That's not happening. So are you going to extend him now at top five linebacker money? That's going to be the conversation going into this offseason, probably for a big chunk of it's this. It's going off-season. to be a hard conversation. It's going to be a really hard conversation. Let me ask you right off the bat. Where are you right now on Tremaine Edmonds? I don't know if this is a good or bad thing, but my thought has not changed. Through three games, he is exactly the player that I thought he was, that I believe he probably will end up being for the long haul of his career, which is a really good middle linebacker in the NFL, a guy that can do everything. He can roam sideline to sideline. He can brush the passer. He can can cover in zone. I think he can cover man up. Um, I don't believe he's worthy of top five money. But I think almost regardless, Bruce, whether it's here in Buffalo or on the open market, he's going to get it. So what the Bills have to decide is how important, how vital is his role? How integral is his role in the success so far of this defense? And I would say, I don't know if it was it us that, that, that said this last week. Maybe it was you that said it, but essentially he has become the star Latula of this defense in the middle. Right, like a guy that does the things that doesn't necessarily show up in the stat book, but are integral to the to the success of the machine. He's his one eleventh that he does every single Sunday is an important piece. And although he may not lead the league in tackles, um, or he may not have the best PFF grade every single week, he's a player that sort of it starts and rotates around him defensively. So I, I think he's really important to this defense. I think if all things were equal and the Bills and Brandon Bean had it his way. He would get him somewhere around Matt Milano money. Um, but I'm not sure that's actually a scenario that's going to play out. MJB in the comment section says, don't extend average players to above average contracts. I agree with you, MJB. I don't know if you're Is a Is he an average listener. player? Um, I think now, that's I, a totally fair question to ask. I, I think it is a fair question. I, I don't think he's an average player. I think he's a, a reasonable player. I think like, yeah, okay. I do a I do a small nod when I say Tremaine Mendes. I go, mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think maybe solid is probably better than average for me. His would you also say, Bruce, that his youth sort of jades all of our thoughts about him? It does. Yeah, I agree. It does. 
it, it, it's it's weird when it happens like that. And now, obviously, there's going to be a lot of things that are influenced by the way you felt about Tremaine Emmons coming out of college. For a lot of people, he was a top five player, period, mm-hmm. on the board. I was never as high on him as I was on other linebackers in that first round class. And mostly it was an instinctual thing for me. I, I recognized he was a freak, but the fact that you had people who, when he was coming out, thought maybe he's an edge rusher. Right there were plenty. There's plenty of people who thought yeah. he was going to be a stand-up rush linebacker in a three-four outside linebacker. So for me, can we can we at least agree that from his draft class that he's the best linebacker from the draft class? Darius Leonard's in that draft class. Oh, that of the first round picks, Roquan Smith is better than Trey. I I like I I okay. I would say maybe Roquan is better, but I think yeah. in terms of fit for this defense. I like Tremaine. I, I said this last week, and maybe it was on pregame or maybe it was on postgame, Bruce, but I said as soon as people realize that Tremaine Edmonds is not Luke Keekley to Sean McDermott's defense, and he's much more Thomas Davis, that more people will appreciate the role in which he plays. Sure. And I think that's completely reasonable. It's all and then then with that question. Matt Milano is your Luke Keekley. Right. Matt Milano is but he is. is Elite. I think we can agree he's a better player. Now, now, do you yes. want do you want the inferior player playing an important role, making seven million more than Matt Milano? It's a value proposition, and that's why this gets complicated. Nobody's saying. Okay, let me rephrase this. Very few people are saying that Jermaine Edmonds <laughs> is a bad player. Okay, I am not one of those people. Jermaine Edmonds is not a bad player. Right. So this isn't the question. The question is just it's a value proposition. How far down the rung are you willing to go before you go, I, I can no longer pay this guy elite money? When you know that Stefan Diggs is gonna, gonna need to get a raise, right? When you know that the big Josh Allen money's getting hit, when you know that you're gonna have players that you need to make sure you pay, at what point do you say, listen, we think he's a good player, he's not good enough for elite money? Like how far down the line do you have to go? Because for Josh Allen you're not going down far the line at all. I mean, you can make an argument. Josh Allen was the second best quarterback in football last year. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to go very far down to justify paying him elite money because he was elite, elite last year. But for Tremaine Emmons, the other question is positional spending. Do you want real, really want to wrap up $30 million in average annual value? It's a lot. Linebackers. It's a lot. It's a lot. And the question, but I think the rebuttal to that, Bruce, or the question, the follow-up question you have to ask is how important is the linebacker position to the success of your defense when you're and and the other thing that I think you have to ask is what is the balance of defense versus offensive spend and mm-hmm. in the hierarchy of how they believe they're going to win football games with a quarterback making $258 million. There's a lot of context, there's a lot of questions that need to be asked. And I think ultimately you get to a point where you may have to choose between keeping Daryl Williams around or extending Tremaine Edmonds. And I think if you asked me that question today, put a gun to my head, I would say Tremaine Edmonds. I, I would say move on from Daryl Williams and take your chances with the Spencer Brown. Um, so I, I, these are questions that that are going to be better broken down in the offseason when we have more information um, by the end of the season and the results of the season. I still think that there is a level of the book is still a little unwritten for Tremaine Edmonds. I, I'm I'm not sure I'm really willing to get to the point where I say Tremaine Edmonds needs to needs to have a Dawson Knox like arrival 
Um, I don't believe he's fully had that arrival yet. But again, I, when, when I started the segment, I said he is kind of who I thought he's always been, which is a really solid above replacement level player. And what you have to sort of acknowledge or, or, or at least get over is that above replacement level is still really good. But do you want to pay an above replacement level player more money than, than Matt Milano, who is, I, I would say right now, the best player on your defense. And th- these are conversations that, again, we're going to have closer to the offseason. But I think it's fair to start broaching um, some of these players right now and thinking about where you are three games in because – Right now, this defense, Bruce, is 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 a top four or five defense, and and we'll see how that changes over the next couple of weeks when they really start to play some offenses like Tennessee and Kansas City. But you know, I I I do wonder, and, I, and I've sort of held this conversation in the back of my mind, thinking that at some point this conversation is going to erupt, and whether it's because of the negatives, a bad game, a, a stretch of bad games, or the defense just continues to be top five, top ten caliber, and he's a big reason why. I, I just even even so, Bruce. If they are a top five defense, I'm not sure that anyone's going to acknowledge Tremaine, Tremaine Edmonds' role in this whole thing because, again, I, I, I get the feeling he is a lot like Star Lutulele, Lutulele, however you want to say it. I've heard people say it two different ways. Regardless, he is going to end up having a very similar impact on games. You realize and recognize when he's not playing, but sometimes he just does his job at a level that you kind of don't notice him while while he is playing. Well, Nate, don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you got until it's gone. Oh, God. And, you know, I think that that's going to be an understanding as we get into this offseason that it's going to be a complicated question. If someone comes to you and says this is really simple, you can probably just go ahead and block out the rest of what they're saying because it's not simple. I would make an argument that the Edmonds conversation is going to be more complicated than the Allen conversation. By each passing game. We just because we can't even agree on how good he is with Josh Allen. We had all these stats from 2020 showing us how good he was. And at least we could base it off of that. We could go with sample size and things like that. But with Tremaine Edmonds, the very foundational pieces, we can't even agree on how good he is. That right there is going to further complicate it. And hopefully we can get, you know, we can get to a common, you know, a common ground when it comes to that. We can start the conversation from there. So we have a special guest. With us here this evening, somebody who I want to have a conversation with, and I think we're just going to just rope him in with the conversation that we're already having regarding year three and year four breakout stars. Ladies and gentlemen, from WKBW sports director, the cookie monster himself, <laughs> Matt Beauvais. Can Ladies I also, thank you so Bruce, much. Hey, Matt, how you doing? I, hey, Hold guys, on, Bruce, what's going on tonight? I have to add in a very important introductory um, uh, credential, which is my girlfriend's favorite sports TV yes. analyst. So yes. that, um, that, 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 that's a key credential you left out, Bruce. Well, well I appreciate I, that. I, Cause I'm you're, sorry. I also appreciate that. Cause your girlfriend isn't like 73 years old. So that's a really <laughs> nice, that's a really, that's really flattering to hear. So thank you, Nate. That, it makes me feel good. Matt also popular with the young ones as well. So popular with the kids. All the TikTokers, not, not just of the world, not just the geriatrics. That's right. Yeah, that's good. I'll put that on my resume. <laughs> so, Matt, we're we're going to loop you into this conversation that we've been having, and it's specifically yeah. talking about the year three and year four breakout candidates that we came into the year with our eye on. Right. Okay. We talked about Tremaine Emmons, and yep. Nate made a passing comment about Dawson Knox. So, I want to start there. Yeah. So, Dawson Knox is a, a player that. 
was a big topic of conversation this offseason. And I think, quite frankly, he was a big topic of conversation because Zach Ertz was a big topic of conversation through a mm -hmm. huge part of the offseason. So for a lot of people, the possible trading of Zach Ertz to the Buffalo Bills almost was like, a, okay, we're giving up. We're, yeah. we're done with Austin Knox now. We need somebody who's ready now. We can't wait around for a converted college quarterback, a high school quarterback who barely got any run in college to develop. But yet here we are, three games in, and Dawson Knox, while not absolutely, absolutely not a breakout star, is markedly more efficient. I mean, this is a guy who had a catch rate in the mid-50s, and all of a sudden, he's catching 83% of the things he's targeted with, including a couple really difficult, really difficult touchdown passes. So when you look at Dawson Knox, you're three games in, you're looking at a scouting report. How are you feeling about Dawson Knox, and how should we be feeling about him? Oh, I'm all in on Dawson Knox. Uh, I think that he uh, breakout candidate is a good way of putting it, but I think he has the skill set for what a new age tight end in the NFL looks like. I think that he fits the offense well, especially with how much they like to run out of 11 personnel and how much success they've had running out of 11 personnel. Um, something that I'm not like super, super, I guess, like involved in is how tight ends block. But from all of the smart people I know and I talk to, they say how great Dawson Knox blocking has become compared to what it was when he entered the league. So it feels like he's checking all of the boxes. And one of the big bugaboos with Dawson Knox has always been like, are the hands going to be good enough to make big time catches? And I guess we won't know until he needs to make a big time play in a big time game. But it looks like he's more comfortable. And that's a big sign. I think he's a freak athlete. I think that Josh trusts him, which is ultimately important. And I think he's going to be a really good value for them because, you know, it's a great contract. And because he didn't have an amazing year one or an amazing year two, especially kind of a bad year two, he might ultimately benefit them from having a little bit of a slow start out of the gate. So I'm, I'm in on Dawson Knox. I really like him. Matt, is it fair to maybe say that Dawson Knox has, at least it feels like, has cannibalized the routes, has cannibalized the targets and the volume of targets from Gabriel Davis, who was a player that I think when it, we went into the season saying, okay, they're going to run a lot of four wide receiver sets. Yeah. We know Emmanuel Sanders is going to be on the field a lot. He is this team's number two wide receiver. I think last week really showed that. Yeah. But I guess the question is, is, is Dawson Knox going to sort of take over now for a lot of those Gabriel Davis targets. And is that the evolution of this offense that maybe we hadn't considered going into this season? Because everyone talked about how in order to be better, this offense had to evolve. They had to change how defenses were, were defending them. And we know right now when they throw four and five wide receivers, when they throw a lot of 10 personnel out there, it seems like team have, teams have the answers. It's so yeah. far through two weeks in a row now, we're seeing, Matt, that there isn't a lot of answers for the 11 personnel when it's when it's sort of featuring Dawson Knox? I don't think it's necessarily a direct correlation. I just think more of it is how much they trust Emmanuel Sanders. And also, if you're going to run 11 personnel, you still want to look like you're having some chance of running the ball. And with Dawson Knox on the fields, 
that maybe looks a little bit more likely than if you are going to go four wide. So I think if you're strolling out onto the field with what I would say their base offense now, which is Stefan Diggs, Emmanuel Sanders, Cole Beasley, Dawson Knox, and then whatever running back they have in the backfield, I think that's probably going to be the go-to. I don't necessarily think that Dawson Knox early season success is keeping Gabriel Davis off the field. I think if it's anything, it's probably just how much they trust Emmanuel Sanders. And also probably that they're scared away from running a ton of four and five wide receiver sets after it really failed week one against the Steelers. And I know that's a great defense. And I bet that they try and go back to that at some point and try and catch a team off guard now that they've had so much success running, you know, three wide receiver sets. But I think that this is going to pretty much be the status quo, assuming everybody stays healthy from here on out. Staying on the offensive side of the board, but going to the offensive line, Cody Ford, again, a different starting position than he started last year. This time it's right guard. So we went right tackle, left guard, right guard. Are we, are we done with, with Cody Ford? Like, is he settled now? Are we feeling good about Cody Ford at right guard? Because coming out, the question was tackle or guard. There were people Mm -hmm. on the tackle side. There were people on the guard side. Then he comes in. They say, Hey, he's a tackle. They make him a right tackle. He has middling results his first year. Second year, comes in. Okay, now he's a left guard. We move him around a little bit. Now he come out. Week one, he's a right guard. Are we done moving Cody Ford first off? And second off, are we feeling like maybe if he stays, he's going to get better? Because you can make an argument that against Pittsburgh, Cody Ford was probably the best offensive line they had. But then this week, not quite as much. Are we feeling same sort of warm and fuzzies? With third-year Cody Ford, as we were with third-year Dawson Knox, are we not feeling fuzzies? Are we feeling the opposite of fuzzies? How are we feeling on Cody Ford? Nate, you want to start or you want me to start? I desperately want you to start because I I just want to make sure we're on the same wavelength, which I I know we are. Well, I'm going to say I'm much higher on Dawson Knox than I am on Cody Ford, and that's not necessarily – I think Cody Ford still has potential. But I just think with all the moving around that he's done, with the way that the offensive line is built now with injuries to take into account, I think the shuffling is going to continue. And I think, I, I don't know, I just don't get the sense that he is somebody that you know have 100% faith in. And moving forward, I think that they're going to, you know, still continue to try and move him around a little bit. Like I, like I said, I don't want to write off Cody Ford by any stretch because you said it, you know, against the Steelers, he was probably their best offensive lineman last couple weeks. You know, there've been other guys who have stood out, but he's a tough one. It's just, it's tough because where they drafted him, they traded up to get him. Like you would think that this guy would have every shot to like lock down his role in the offensive line and to me, the fact that he not, hasn't necessarily done that yet probably says more about what the coaching staff thinks of him than, you know, anything else. Yeah, and I don't know, man, I, I, I look at this offensive line and it's hard for me to like find a guy short of Deion Dawkins, who I think after week one, where I think there was rightfully questions about, yeah. Is he ready to play football right now? And mm-hmm. through two more weeks, I'm feeling in a much better place about Deion Dawkins where 100%. he is. He's feeling in a better place about himself, which I think is probably was probably the first hurdle here, um, is, is feeling more comfortable himself. I wonder where you are through about to be quarter one of the season with this offensive line. And, and if all things are healthy, if all pieces are healthy, 
Do you believe that the offensive line we've seen through Q1, which has had its ups, had its downs, do you see them getting better because of the time they're going to have together throughout the season? I don't see them facing a ton of great defensive lines. I mean, Kansas City coming up has got a really nice defensive line. They're going to be facing a Houston defense this week who loses Blaylock, who I think was their best interior defensive lineman for the first three games. So they catch a break there. But short of that, Tennessee's defensive line's been terrible. And otherwise, basically, the, the only other one you look at and say, that is an elite level defensive line is the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And I, and I think, Matt, I feel pretty good that they handled the defensive line of Washington last week in a way, particularly Mitchell Morris head up against Jonathan Allen, which was a matchup I'd circled three times and said, if they lose this matchup, they're going to lose. They lose the line of scrimmage. They could lose this football game. And I thought the, the tone was set by how uh, Mitch Morris dominated that football game in the middle. If I want to talk about one bright spot, I might say, Matt, that it's been Mitchell Morris. I I very much agree with you because I think Mitch Morris week one took some heat, and I think rightfully so. Honestly, the entire offensive line deserved some heat in that game, but I think Morris was really good against Washington. And yeah. I think Deion Dawkins, when you compare him to what he was week one, was also really good. And I still think that, you know, Deion Dawkins is a franchise left tackle. He's going to be there for a long way. So I guess if you were rating this on a scale of one to 10, one being I'm like very, very, very concerned and 10 being like, this is a rock solid unit, the offensive line. I'm probably at like a six or a seven. Mm. Like I think the group that they have is fine. I think if you need to rotate Ike Butker in for a series or a game or two, you'll be able to survive. But I think if there's anything that happens to any of these guys long-term, they're going to be in some trouble. And also Daryl Williams has been a little slow out of the gate. And it's not something that's like the sky is falling yet, but I also think it is something that needs to, you know, we need to keep an eye on because they did just pay him. And it's not like they have a super long-term commitment to him. They can get out of these contracts, but there's a reason they wanted to keep him around because last year was really good. The first yeah. couple games this year, it's not like he's been a disaster, but he hasn't been the player we saw last year. There are three of the current Buffalo Bills offensive linemen that there's a very reasonable chance are not starting next year. And when you look at their contracts, John Feliciano's contract is very much a one year and then potentially get out. Darrell Williams contract is a one year and potentially get out. Mitch Morse, you can get out after this year. The, the offensive line could look very different next year. And it's something we need to make sure that we don't have this scenario where we look at the Pittsburgh game and all of a sudden we're up in arms. And then four games later, we haven't even evaluated it at all. We just completely take it all. Oh, well, you know what? After a bad game, we panicked and then everything's fine. And we just ignored it for the rest of the year. But the last person I want to talk about is that Oliver. And I'm going to ask you a question. I'm going to give you some time to think about it, So I'll go first on this one because you're a cookie aficionado. We've been talking about aficionados We've been talking about connoisseurs specifically. We talked about root beer connoisseurs. We talked about beer connoisseurs. We talked about all sorts of things. We did not talk about cookie connoisseurs because we had you coming on. We were waiting. We're going to ask if Ed Oliver was a cookie, what kind of cookie would he be based on his specific breakout potential this year? Nate, you got something? I also would like to ask you if your first round pick for cookie connoisseurs people like you would it be paul hamilton would he be your number one pick for like cookie connoisseur like teammates no absolutely not no really absolutely, no i don't trust his food takes whatsoever <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> even a little bit all, right. he, all the th- all the things that all the things that he thinks are 
bad. Oh are great. God! So why would yeah? <laughs> no, and Paul and Paul knows that. He knows that we have no similarities when it comes to food. Oh, that's sure, what that's what makes him great, though. So yes, that is what makes him that's great. Funny. I think Paul probably owns a Cookie Monster tie. If I had to, if I had to, I guess. would also guess that. What kind okay. of cook? What so, kind of cookie is that? Uh, I'll go ahead and go first, so I can stall and give you enough time to think. Okay. So. If Ed Oliver was a cookie based on his breakout potential, based on the skill set he has, I'm going to go ahead and say right now that are you familiar with the Christmas cookies that you make that are peanut butter cookies with a Hershey kiss that has been pressed in? Oh, yeah, of course. Ed Oliver is that cookie, and I will tell you why. Number one, Hmm. those cookies are undersized relative to other cookies. From a total perimeter standpoint, those cookies are markedly smaller. However... When executed at a high level, there are a few things that really, really penetrate the taste buds the way that those do. That Mm. chocolate, that peanut butter, it just cuts right through everything else. Sometimes when you're feeling like you've overstuffed a little bit, you've had a little bit too much Christmas ham, you've had a little bit too much casserole, (laughs) for some reason, you can always find room for one of those cookies. Why? Because it cuts right through the middle. You have it and you're like, you know what? This is absolutely what I needed. I, I, I can I can have the beef everywhere else, but this little cookie here that might go unnoticed based on its size is absolutely elite tier key. And what we got to do is we have to learn to appreciate that cookie, but there's sometimes where I don't know if you can really have them in large quantities. So if Ed Oliver was a cookie, in my opinion, he would be, some people call them peanut butter blossoms. Some people call them those things, right? I don't really yeah. actually Do know they? what my wife calls them. I probably should have asked my wife. You should have asked your wife. It. She would but have we know exactly, But we know exactly yeah. what you're talking about. Yeah. Everybody yeah. knows. That's yeah. Ed Oliver as a cookie. And so far this year, I thought Ed Oliver was an absolute revelation against the Pittsburgh Steelers. I thought he was unbelievable. And then he was also very good the next week against the Miami Dolphins. Not quite the same amount of impact week three, but it almost feels like as the defensive line goes, so goes at Oliver because the defensive line was getting pressure week two. The defensive line did a good job of compressing everybody in keeping Taylor Heineke in the pocket in week three, but you didn't see those flashy one-on-one wins. So for me, when I look at at Oliver, I think peanut butter blossom. So so let let me tell you why you're wrong. And let me tell you the actual cookie that Ed Oliver is. I'm ready. And I'm glad that you set the stage for Christmas cookies because that is where I'm staying. And I'm going to tell you that Ed Oliver is the little tiny powdered sugar sugar cookie. And here's the reason why. Okay. Because everybody, all your aunts, your uncles, the older cousins, you know what they all say? Oh, that's my favorite cookie. It is so good. It is the Aaron Donald of cookies. And I say, ah, it's okay. It depends which aunt makes it. Sometimes my aunt Linda, when she makes them, you're like, these, these are, they're soft. They're, they're like the perfect, I'll, I'll use a great British baking reference. They're not stodgy. Uh, and then you go and you have like another aunt and I won't, I won't tell which aunt makes this cookie, but it's dry it breaks and crumbles and it's not really that good. And my thought is a week to week basis. Sometimes you get aunt Linda cookies and sometimes you get the unnamed aunt cookies. And that is the biggest difference to me. I think they're okay, but when the right aunt makes them, I think they can be what all of my aunts and uncles talk about, which is 
this elite cookie. It's delicious. And there's never any left on the Christmas cookie tray for some reason after the Christmas party. I really like where both of you went. I had two that I was thinking, but I'm also going to stick with a holiday themed cookie. I am going to stick with, I'm going to call Ed Oliver the Pillsbury cookies that come in the boxes that sit the Christmas in the ones. There, there's Christmas, there's Halloween. Halloween, there's, the pumpkin on them. Yes, there's, there's all the different holidays. Are those are really good, Matt. And my thought process here is that when those are cooked right, they're great. And you're really happy with how they turn out. But it's also really easy to cook those bad, and then they stay. Earn the bottoms. Yeah. That's what I mean. So once the bottom gets a little too crispy, then they're basically like little hockey puck crackers, and those aren't You almost, good. Matt, if, if I'm not mistaken, you almost don't want to have to chew them. No, you want them to melt in your mouth. Yeah. And every once in a while, Ed Oliver will have one of those games where you're just like, wow, this guy is so good. Like, why can't he always do this? Why can't we always bake the cookies perfectly for 12 minutes at 400 degrees? It doesn't seem like it should be that difficult. But when, you know, you walk outside for a minute, you got to go turn the hose off or you got to do whatever is going on outside and you come back in and you're a minute too late, you don't get the perfect experience. And I think that's sometimes what happens to Ed Oliver. Like, from a football side of things, I think Ed Oliver is a really important player for the defense. Yeah, and I think from the Christmas party side of things, those cookies are an important cookie on the Christmas cookie tray that you bring to the party. They fill the space between all the really good cookies. He fills the space between the chocolate chip. That's Matt Milano and the white macadamia nut. That's Tredavious White. So that's 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 my answer. And then to let go off of what Bruce was saying, the peanut butter blossom cookies, I think that's like the perfect analogy because I also think if you take the chocolate chip away from the peanut butter blossom cookie, mm. it's still good. Yeah. So when you t- when you take the chocolate chip away from Ed Oliver, he can still be good. He can still impact the game, but it's not like the full potential. You know, one of the things that that really upsets me about peanut butter cookies is a lot of people don't do the necessary second and third steps which is the little fork thing. That's fine. Like most yeah. peanut butter cookies. But when people don't add on the granular sugar at the end for me to get that like crunchy texture with the creaminess of the inside of the peanut butter cookie, that's really where people lose me. Yeah. Um, but Matt, I, I have a, an important one for you because today okay. I have the opportunity to, and this is sitting down cookie lane right now. I had the opportunity to play at uh, one, what I believe is just one of the best uh, you know, country clubs here in Western New York, which is the Country Club of Buffalo today. Yes. Um, and I know you've played before, correct? Yes, I have. Okay, times. so you've played before, then you know about the halfway house gingerbread cookies, correct? I do actually know about the halfway. There's a couple, there's like a ha- couple like halfway house delicacies in Western New York. That's one of them. The pretzel rods at Brookfield are a halfway house I've, delicacy. I've heard good things. I've never <laughs> been to Brookfield, but I've literally, I've heard more about the pretzels at the halfway house at Brookfield than the actual golf course. Yeah. So there you go. But yes, no, the cookies are, I, I appreciate, you know, you're talking about a really beautiful country club. They got to get you in those cookies. Like, come on. That's lovely. Bruce, so think of like perfectly cooked molasses gingerbread, like no crunch whatsoever. Mm -hmm. The chewy, ooey, gooey, like they're fresh, but you know what they are. They, they make them there. They are not like, they're not, they're not store-bought, you know? And 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 they're nice because they cover a lot of times a day. Like if you're there early in the morning, like you could still grab one with a coffee and it's not weird. And the thing you know, is, you don't grab one. I grabbed, grabbed like I, think, three. I think I grabbed about four this morning. 
um, when I was there. It is an elite cookie. And, and Bruce, what before we we let Matt go, I did want to get your overall thoughts on the on the gingerbread molasses cookie, and then I've got a follow up for for Bove. But Bruce, your overall thoughts on where the molasses cookie kind of sits in the importance of everyday cookies because you your your big four chocolate chip peanut butter oatmeal raisin and um and a white chocolate macadamia like those are your your big four so to speak your power four conferences um but i do think that generally speaking we probably sleep too much on the gingerbread molasses cookie not the hard gingerbread but like that 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 delicious brown sugary thing of beauty I think when you look at the gingerbread molasses cookie, I think you're looking at Gregory Russo. Are we and and, and hold on before I even let you go any further? Are we okay. are, are are Bove and I <laughs> aging ourselves out? Like we talked about how our our following tends to be uh, older, like my yes. grandparents' age. And does that make yeah. sense that we like ginger cookies? Is am, am I aging myself? A little yes, bit. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, we are. both are. Uh, I also really love lemon bars. So, yeah, you I was going to say lemon bars, <laughs> Pitzels, gingerbread yes. cookies. <laughs> yes, we've gone completely off the reservation. We, we <laughs> spent too much time at our grandparents' Beauvais. Wait, I can uh, tell. You're, you're yeah, way kidding. too much. So, okay. So, so gingerbread molasses is is Gregory Rousseau. It's it's homegrown. Mm. It's homemade, mm. right? You can go. You can go a year and not have it and come back to it. And it's just as good, if not better, than it was before. Therefore, the molasses cookie is Gregory Rousseau. Mr. Beauvais, thank yes. you so much for joining Wait, us. Thank you for being on. part of this. What? I, this is the most what? important what? question. I'm keeping him an extra minute for this. This is you a really important ready. question. Keep me as long Listen, as you guys need. Beauvais recently took over on the Bills Beat podcast, which is arguably one of the best podcasts out there. And I've got to know what it's – only because I know you have the experience with Joe B., but generally speaking, when you get on a weekly podcast with Joe B, yeah, how is it knowing that you have a guy with arguably the most now this will be controversial because I know there's gonna be some Matt Perino fans in here, but we're talking about flawless hair. It's yeah. hard not to mention Joe B. And it's secondly, tough. how is it like when you have to look up to him? Because he's six foot eleven. Okay. So Joe and I worked together for about four and a half years and we became very good friends pretty fast. And one of the things that he always gave me a hard time about was my insecurity of my typical height. So like I'm five, very middle America. Yeah. I'm, I'm five eleven. I think if you asked me how tall I was, I'd say six foot, but I'm mm -hmm. just a little under six foot. We are cut from the same cloth brother. And you know, like, <laughs> I, it always, I think a real personal guys, it always really bothered me that I've basically been this height since I was like in middle school and then I stopped growing. So that was annoying. And my dad's tall. My dad's like six, three. So the doctor was always like, you're going to be nice and tall. And then I never was nice and tall. So we would get in the studio together and it honestly just looks a little strange having two people stand next to each other that are you know, that different in height. Cause we're talking about Joe, who's like six, four, six, five. And then yeah. me who's five eleven. So, you know, if I'm sitting next to him, it's not strange, but when you're standing next to each other, it looks a little weird. So in the studio, there are some people who work at the station who are not very tall and there are boxes. And a lot of people stand <laughs> on boxes for these situations. <laughs> and it used to drive me so crazy. And Joe would just like, slide the box over towards my feet with his foot while we were standing there. And I'd get like, so mad. I'm like, no, I'm not standing <laughs> on the box. This is ridiculous. Stop it. And he's like, Oh my God, just stand on the box. It'll look better. I was like, no, I'm not doing it. I don't care if it looks better. 
I'm not doing it. So it's intimidating because it feels like yes. he's talking down to you as he's talking about like all these crazy statistics that I got no idea what they mean. And he's already like looking over me and I'm like, what the heck is this? So yeah, that's intimidating because there is such a height difference. And then on the hair side of things, so I actually officiated Joe's wedding um, a couple months ago. And one of the lines that I used when I was officiating the wedding was that his now wife started dating him before he got the volume in his hair. So you know it's true love because she was with him when he had the full out, you know, not the Euro cut. So yeah, it's, he's got, he's got very nice hair. I've got to know a lot of people like Carino's got great hair. He does. Joe has great hair. Uh, Tom Martin used to be in the market. Tom Martin. Exceptional hair. hair. Yeah. So I shouldn't say did. I mean, he currently does. He's not like he's no longer with us. He's just not in the Buffalo market to admire anymore. Uh huh. Yeah. Josh Reed has very nice hair. You know, there's a lot lot of people with really good hair. And I guess that's just how it works. That is the TV life. That is the TV life. I'm not one of them. I I go into the, I go and get the haircut and I say, make, make, make me uh, look like Matt Perino. (laughs) And they're like, what? We are, we are, we are pumping Matt Perino's brain. Hopefully he does not watch this podcast because he's just going to have the biggest head on Sunday. Well, you know what? When your face is on a billboard, you got to have nice hair. That's a good point. You know what? I'm just going to go ahead and say it. I also have nice hair. Okay. So y'all can just. (laughs) Bruce Bruce has great hair. Bruce, I've seen it. You, you do it. It's feathered and it's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, But the hat dangerous and the umbrella hat covers it. Absolutely. It does. It does. Matt Beauvais, sports director, WKBW noted cookie aficionado, but not a box guy. Thank you so much for being a part of this, Matt. Thank you for taking time out of your Friday evening to spend time with us. We really appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. And uh, enjoy the rest of your weekends. We will. soon. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Matt Beauvais, Sports Director WKBW. Really nice of him to take the time out of his day and come on. We we absolutely had to spend a reasonable amount of time on cookies. We just had to. It was required. I understand there was a comment in here says, hey, this is a football stream, right? Well, yes, but it's also food for thought. It's food for thought. I mean, it's a Friday night. You're going to kick off your shoes. We're going to talk some football. We're going to spit some food takes. It's going to happen. So it's, it's just it's part of the brand, baby. It's part of the brand. It's what we do. And as a reminder for all of you out there, the all of the guests that come to you on the food for thought are brought to you on the Thrive hotline come prop up on thrive fantasy this football season thrive fantasy is a daily fantasy sports and esports app for player props with thrive you can eliminate the countless hours of research and focus on only the top tier athletes that have the biggest effect on the game choose 10 out of the 20 available player props to build your lineup each prop is assigned a fantasy value for both the over and the under based on how likely it is to hit hit the most props and rack up the most points to win a share of the prize pool Thrive has awarded over $4 million so far. Thrive's featured $100,000 guaranteed contest is $20 to enter, and first place takes home $20,000. Use promo code BUFFBILLS, that's B-U-F-F-B-I-L-L-S, when you sign up today and you will receive a 100% instant first deposit match up to $100. Download Thrive Fantasy on the App Store or Play Store or by visiting their website, www.thrivefantasy.com. That's www.thrivefantasy.com. Sign up and prop up today. Nate, we got mm-hmm. through all four of our potential breakout candidates. That doesn't always happen. And I want to circle back 
to something we talk about every single week. And if somebody thought we were talking about cookies for too long, they're going to like this because mm. specifically I want to know what you're looking for schematically against Houston. What do you have your eye on? You said that you circled Mitch Morse versus Jonathan Allen and Jerron Payne, the interior defensive line of the Washington football team against Mitch Morse. That was something you had circled twice. What do you have circled twice this week? I think it's a great question, Bruce. And I would say I've got Brandon Cooks and Tredavious White uh, circled. I think last week, once again, Tredavious White showed how still, for some reason, he's under-talked about and underappreciated in the NFL. He shut down Terry McLaurin, who I think is – this is going to be a little hot takey. Top, Terry McLaurin's a top-seven receiver in this league right now. He is that good. And, and Tredavious White, on a Sunday afternoon, shut – him down and and by the way Terry McLaurin went off against a highly more expensive secondary in a Dory Jackson and James Bradbury just a week prior against the New York Giants and James Bradbury is a damn good NFL corner outside cornerback a Dory Jackson is a pretty good NFL outside cornerback and Tredavious White had arguably significantly more success the week uh last week than uh than than those two did the week prior so for me Brandon Cooks has sort of been setting the league on fire through the first three weeks. It has not mattered who the quarterback is. He is their primary pass catcher. He is one of the most consistent players and maybe one of the most underappreciated route runners in all of the league. Sean McVay knew it. They just couldn't afford him anymore. And more importantly, at the time when he was in Los Angeles, he just couldn't stay healthy. The concussions were a real concern. They sort of gets jettisoned out to Houston. And, and, and his career very well could have been over. He could have wrapped it up and said, I'm done. Um, in Houston at a young age after being traded for like the fourth time uh, in his young career. But instead, he has thrived in a, on a team and in an offense that is not really meant to thrive. And I give him a lot of credit. And, and I think I think Brandon Cooks is one of still the most underappreciated route runners in all of the league and can be a guy that can absolutely beat you this week. So that matchup between Tredavious White and Brandon Cooks, I'm going to be keeping an eye on. And, and if we see similar return on, on investment, that we did last week against Terry McLaurin, I think you really start to have to you, you really start to have to talk more about Tre'Davious White as a as a legitimate first team All Pro this year. I know the, the the interception numbers maybe aren't there. You see the peanut punch last week on um, uh, against Washington and that great play that he made to turn the ball over, but the, the interception and 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 maybe fumble force fumble numbers won't be there by the end of the year. He's not going to lead the league in interceptions by any means, but. He's a guy that consistently shuts down shuts down teams' number one receivers. He did it last week, and I'll be looking for him to do it this week. That's a fantastic one. I actually don't think the Terry McLaurin being a top seven receiver in the league. I don't think that's a hot take. The only reason that people you might, might be on the trading block take. in our fantasy league, by the way. Really? So you? So funny story. You actually might uh, you might not know this, but you actually interrupted us, the, the viewers. You interrupted uh, Nate and I in the middle of trade negotiations. Yes. We were talking about some stuff when we like, listen, I'm sorry. We got to go live. We got to do this. So after this is over, they might, they might continue with trade negotiations. The thing that I'm looking for this particular game is I'm very interested to see what kind of coverage techniques the Texans roll out. Because when you think Lovey Smith, Okay, the first thing you come to mind is zone coverage, right? Lovey Smith, zone coverage. The first thing you think of the years with the Rams, the years with the Bears, you think this is a cover two defense, right? That's a cover two defense. And historically, 
Josh Allen has been markedly better as of last year anyway, versus man than he was against zone, which is ironic mm. because in 2019, the book on Josh Allen was cover zero, run man and, and blitz him and make him make decisions. But then you get elite route runner like Stefan Diggs. And all of a sudden you have answers built in. Josh Allen understands the scheme a little bit more. Now all of a sudden he's dominant against man, 122 passer rating against man coverage last year from Josh Allen. But now this particular year, the Texans are not who I thought they were going to be on defense. They've run man coverage 61% of the time, which is first in the NFL. I was absolutely shell-shocked when I saw this. Because, I mean, I watched the Texans, but I wasn't paying attention to, okay, man, put it on the man, zone, put it on the man. Like, I wasn't charting them when I was watching right. them. Like, casually, I had no idea that 61% of the snaps they lined up were going to be in man coverage, which is number one in the NFL. That is a very unlovey Smith-like thing to do. Mm. But it's also not the best way to approach Josh Allen right now, especially when you don't have the horses on the backside. Now, they are getting the safety Justin Reed back this year, this 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 week. But, I mean, do you really want Vernon Hargraves on Stephon Diggs in man coverage? That seems like I that certainly would be a hope bad idea. I, I hope that they don't want that. So I am going to be fascinated. I am going to be watching that so closely because the thing that I thought coming into this year you were going to see from Lovey Smith, you have not seen. Mm -hmm. Basically at all. You have not seen the over-reliance on cover two and zone defense. And even though that has historically been the way that you can get better results against Josh Allen, but we didn't see it. So is it's going to be a, a tendency breaker? It's going to be way, yeah. way different this week. Or maybe it's not. I don't know. But it's going to be fascinating. Mafia Mom in the comments says it could be a mislead, but Lovey was talking about playing heavy stone versus Allen. Right. I have no idea. I don't think he would come out here and like tell everyone what the strategy was going to be, but I don't know. Probably not. This is the fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating to me because at this point, Lovey Smith's been around a long time. I thought I knew exactly who Lovey Smith was. And then he comes out and rolling a bunch of man coverage, and I don't know who I am anymore, Nate. I don't know. Up is down. Left is right. Dogs are hanging out with cats. You know, Miami Dolphins fans are praising you on social media. It's insanity. It's okay. absolutely insanity. And I Relax. just don't know, Nate. I just don't know. So moving on to dessert. Dessert, we have a mailbag to talk about. Make sure if you have questions for Nate and I, you put them in the comments section. If you want to make sure we get to them, make sure you use the super chat. But in the meantime, while I'm waiting for you to put some comments live with us here on YouTube, I am going to read to you an email that I got from a listener. Jamie. Love a good email. And he was specifically talking about where we draw the line as far as a pick being a myth or a hit or a miss. He said, okay, let's take first round quarterbacks out of the equation. Where do you draw the line in the sand on if players were serviceable or a miss? For example, you would reasonably expect a first-round pick to be a starter in his first season is to remain there until their rookie contract ends. However, a sixth-round pick, you'd be happy with them getting on the practice squad. We're now at a stage where we as Bills fans can start to judge Bean and McDermott's drafts as the players they have drafted are coming to the end of their rookie contracts. How do you judge this? So I will open it to you first, and then I'll circle back. What are your general philosophies on that? You know, Bruce, it's, I think it's a good question. 
Well, we accidentally lost Nate while he was in the middle of talking. All he had a chance to say was, it was a good question. And I agree. It was a good question. So I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to say what I think it is. And this is this. I think this changes at different stages of your organization's life cycle. I think right now, if you have a day three pick who makes this team, that's a success. A day three pick who just makes the team, I'm good with it. I'm 100% good with it. Now, if you have a first round pick, I think what you're looking for is an impact starter. You specifically want an impact starter. That's what you want from a first round pick. And I think if you have an impact rotational player on the defensive line, that's good enough because you have a heavy rotation. So starter, you can't see me, I'm doing air quotes, but starter is a little foggy when it comes to defensive line in Sean McDermott's defense. So if you have an impact rotational player, that's good for a defensive lineman. But if you have a corner or a nickel or a linebacker, you want a starter who's going to impact. Now, they don't have to impact right away. I disagree with the idea that if you draft someone in the first round, they have to start right away. I think sometimes when you have a team that's not good, it can make them look like they're better drafters than they are. They're like, oh my gosh, Nate, we drafted three starters. Well, did you draft three starters because your team is bad right. or because your draft picks were good? So drafting three starters isn't necessarily a boon. It's not necessarily something for you to pat yourself on the back for. So for me, this changes as it kind of evolves as an organization. Now, the only thing you had an opportunity, the only it was so good. The question was so good. <laughs> Poom33 in the comments says, I, I gave such a good question that my only got like, out no. was, Bruce, it's a really good question. And then boom, he's gone. It was gone. so good. He's like, I'm checking out. I got nothing to say. <laughs> I have nothing to offer based on how majestic this question was. Nate, let's circle back. I stalled. Yeah. I talked. You got back yeah. on. Hit me. So I, I I think it's interesting because this almost becomes a question. You have to layer in the question of drafting for need or drafting for best available. It's almost that it, it almost they're, they're very similar conversations, right? Because look at the Miami Dolphins, for for instance, right, Bruce? And everyone will say the Miami Dolphins haven't spent the resources on their offensive line, which is hooey. They've spent first round picks. They've spent second round picks. If you look across that offensive line, they're all first and second round picks. The problem is when you reach for an Austin Jackson, instead of taking a player, I, I mean, I, I don't remember that draft, that Vietnamese that I, that I can remember exactly who went after him, but that at the time was a reach for them. I, I thought Eichenberg in the second round last year, there were better players on the board and I'm an Eichenberg fan. So th- what this comes down to Bruce is where the player is picked and are you picking for a position of need? Because if you're picking for a defensive lineman for need, cause you need an interior defensive lineman and you reach for one, you're, you're almost always going to be chasing that positional value over the intended value of whoever was the best player available. So for me, I think you can never go wrong with a player that's starting caliber, that's going to make your starting lineup week in and week out and have an impact week in and week out, whether or not we see his ceiling. And this is really what this discussion is, Bruce, is are you drafting a player in which you are getting his ceiling week in and week out, or are you getting a player that fluctuates? And if you look across the league, every you know replacement level, above replacement level player, you have to sort of live with the five, six, seven weeks a year that you're getting the player's ceiling or close to it. And, and I think in the case of Ed Oliver, I think he's a perfect example of this, is there are thorns to Ed Oliver. The question is, do you love roses enough to hold the thorn, or to hold them 
without getting pricked. Well, I, I really like the analogy we went there. So, you know, historically we go food analogies, but Nate showing his versatility going That's floral right. analogies. Mm -hmm. So I went ahead and looked it up. These were the players taken immediately after Austin Jackson in the 2020 draft. They're going to be good the players. Miami Dolphins picked Austin Jackson at pick number 18. Damon Arnett from the Raiders. Mm. Kalevon Chason to the Jaguars. Mm. Jalen Rager for the Eagles. Justin mm. Jefferson for the Vikings. Kenneth Murray for the Chargers. Cesar Ruiz, the Saints. Brandon Ayuk. The 49ers, Jordan Love, the Packers, everyone's favorite pick, especially Aaron Rodgers. Jordan Brooks, the Seahawks, Patrick Queen to the Ravens, Isaiah Wilson, maybe so far one of the most significant busts in NFL history. Isaiah maybe Wilson, ever. Yeah. 30th, Miami Dolphins, Noah Igbenogany, corner, Auburn, 31, Jeff Gladney to the Vikings, 32, Claire wow. to the Kansas City Chiefs. I'll level with you. I mean, Justin Jefferson clearly stands out. That's right. right. Maybe, maybe they don't have to draft. Maybe they don't have to, you know, do all the trading that they did and end up settling on Jalen Waddle this particular offseason if they draft That's Justin right. Jefferson. But I don't know. You know, we don't know what their thought process were. Surely they didn't think going into the 2020 draft that Devontae Parker was it. He was the dude. That's the only dude you were ever going to need forever. It's the only dude that they so had. I don't think you can look at that and say, I think one of the things that we have a tendency to do is we have a tendency to really overrate the quality of the players that are on the team. And I'll, I'll give you a great example of this. The Minnesota Vikings, there are articles out there. You can go find them. When they drafted Adrian Peterson, that said they didn't need him because they had Chester Taylor. That's an actual, those are actual things. We don't need a running back. We have Chester Taylor, who just came off a thousand yard season. Now, that is completely apart from the, should you draft a running back in the first round discussion, mm -hmm. which is a whole different conversation. But the point here is we have a tendency to overestimate the quality of the players that are on the team. Oh, we don't need that. We don't need that. We don't need that. We don't need that. Your team is never as good as you think they are. They're right. never flawless. They're never without needs. This is one of the reasons why I'm never on board with drafting a running back in the first round, because it's a luxury pick that no one can ever afford. Ever. Ask the Jacksonville Jaguars, ask anyone in that organization. And that's not just because, Travis Etienne is injured and is it making an impact on the field? He will go on to have four additional years here with his fifth year option to I'm sure have plenty of opportunities to have impact. The question being Bruce is with all the other holes in that team, spending a second first round pick on a running back is so negligent. It was that is going to end up being one of the worst picks of that draft. Ladies and gentlemen, we did it. We're going to finish up real quick with the winners and losers from this week in the NFL. And I want to go first. I'm going to say my winner for this week in the NFL is Joe Burrow. Joe Ooh. Burrow, I think has shown a lot of prospective Cincinnati Bengals coaches that this is a place that if you want to go to a place where there's a rare opportunity to go, where you still have a young franchise quarterback, those jobs don't come often. Dare I say is Cincinnati a reasonable job opening if they get rid of their current coach, if Zach Taylor isn't back next year, is Cincinnati a desired opening? Regardless mm. of how incredibly cheap the ownership has been known to be in Cincinnati, is it a desired opening just because you have Joe Burrow? The fact that I'm even asking that says Joe Burrow is the biggest winner. Biggest loser this particular week in the NFL. It's got to be Urban Meyer. It's got to be Urban Meyer. I, I am... I thought it was going to be a tire fire when they hired him. So far, it's been a tire fire. 
But this was a team that drafted number one overall for a reason. So it's not like they were a good team. The question is, can he hold it together while it's not? Because the immediate winning will fix everything. Immediate losing is where this whole C word starts to come into play. Mm. And it's culture. The immediate losing is where culture matters. And I don't know if Urban Meyer is going to be an NFL culture coach. So for me, biggest loser this week, he needed a win desperately on primetime with his quarterback playing well. Looked like it was going to happen too. For me, biggest winner, Joe Burrow. Biggest loser, Urban Meyer. Nate? I'm going to start with biggest loser this week because it's the most entertaining one. And the biggest loser has to be Pete Carroll and the Seattle Seahawks. Another just terrible performance this week after literally vomiting on themselves on week two, giving up a three-score lead over the Tennessee Titans at home. Like, I don't understand what's happening with that franchise. There was a lot of talk this offseason that Russell Wilson could potentially get traded and get moved. I think I think if they struggle this year, if they lose two more games, there's a chance they're not going to get close to the to the uh, to the wild card. That division is the best division in football. They're in real trouble, and if they don't make the playoffs this year, Russell Wilson is as good as gone. That guy's going to demand a trade at some point here um, to get himself out of Seattle because of how that team refuses to really get with the times um, and throw the football with the regularity that other teams with elite quarterbacks do. And they want to continue to talk about how they want to run more and get Chris Carson more involved in the game plan. Yeah, Pete Carroll and the Seattle Seahawks, my biggest loser from this past week. There's a lot of, uh, Bruce, in my opinion, uh, people to take for biggest winner this week. Um, I, I think it's very easy to look at Joe Burrow last night um, and Zach Taylor and that Cincinnati Bengals team getting to three and one, um, I think is a really big accomplishment for that franchise, especially after how poorly they looked in the first half. But for me, I'm going to rewind back to last Sunday at 4.05 or maybe it was 4.25 p.m. Eastern uh, time slot. I've got to say Brandon Staley and Justin Herbert, of the Los Angeles Chargers, getting that win over the Kansas City Chiefs, um, showing, I think, a real model on how you beat that football team. And I know you, you got to pick off Patrick Mahomes a couple of times, and that's the model, and is that a replica model? But I, I think you you talk about scoring enough points, holding out of the football, and being aggressive at the end of the game, going forward on fourth down, trusting your team, and Brandon Staley did that. And I think a really important moment gave his uh, second-year quarterback, who I think is it's going to be in the same conversation as Josh Allen and, and Patrick Mahomes as, as the next wave of amazing players. And I would not be me. You wouldn't trust me if I didn't at least have one parting shot at how the Miami Dolphins picked Tua Tungavaiola over Justin Herbert, who's going to be an MVP caliber, and I think someday a Super Bowl winning quarterback over a guy with a little limp left arm. Well, I don't know how we could possibly end better than that. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us for this edition of Food for Thought. I apologize we ran a few minutes late, but let's be honest. Cookies, we got to talk about cookies, okay? Cookies are important. We have to make sure we talk about them. That's right. For those of you who are here with me live on the Buffalo Rumblings Vidcast Network, make sure you like, subscribe, comment, do all of the digital engagement things that help us reach more people. Make sure you like the podcast, share the podcast, all the things that you're doing. And we hope you enjoyed your experience here this evening at Food for Thought. And we hope you didn't leave hungry.